the passage that we are reading from is John 17, 20 through 26. Um, this week's sermon title is called Unity. So John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with them which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. May God bless the reading of his word. We've got Minister Pat giving the sermon titled Unity. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Good morning, Crossbridge. Uh, let's try that again. Good morning, Crossbridge. Good morning. All right. Last week, we wrapped up the This Is Us sermon series. In several of those messages, Pastor Jeff unpacked for us four key convictions held by members of our community. Those motivations and values have brought us here. They will continue to guide our actions and reveal the strengths of Crossbridge. Can you remember those four motives? Let's recite them together. For God, scripture-driven, better together, and servant-hearted. Very good. Our text today highlights that interplay between two of them. John chapter 17 helps us how being for God makes us better together. So what does better together mean to you? Why does it fit us so well? And why is it so important that it comes in at number three on our top four list? You see, unity is a challenge in any church. When believers are not actively trying to be better together, we naturally slump into becoming worse apart. Like pulling off a special move in Street Fighter, or combos in Tekken, or perhaps uh, what they call advanced techniques in Super Smash Brothers. You see, doing better together requires coordination, requires practice, and lots of energy. You see, uncoordinated or unplanned efforts it's like that button mashing. It's not very productive. Now, historically, unity has been a problem for the church. You don't have to look any further than the many denominations, the Catholics, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Pentecostals, and the list goes on. 
But even within each denomination, there are disagreements. For example, in countries with political sensitivities, you might have one set of house churches that are set against another set of churches that are sponsored by the government. The two sides dislike one another. And even among those who are aligned within the house churches, you can still find disagreement there. So what you have are a lot of separated fellowships, a lot of separated churches, each doing their own thing with little cooperation. Now, this can also be true of individuals within the same local church. It's clear that God ordains unity among his people. He sent his son to save us. Jesus leads us as a head over one body, united by the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 13 summarizes, declaring we are baptized by one spirit into one body. But many times we are disunited. I hear people speak somewhat negatively of other groups or of other believers for various reasons. Because that is not what God wants, Jesus, our high priest, intercedes on our behalf now as he has done in the past while on earth. See, Jesus prays for future believers and for their unity of faith so that the world would know that God sent Jesus who saves. Join me in prayer, and we'll jump into the text. Our Lord in heaven, as we turn to your word, align our thoughts and attune our hearts to the message you have prepared for us. We want to see you, Jesus, for we pray this in your blessed name. Amen. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 was prayed the same night that he was betrayed, the same night that he went to the cross, the same night that he gathered his disciples for a Passover meal. The night Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which is communion, which we will be partaking together later in this service. They're up in the upper room. Jesus spoke intimately with his disciples. He addressed the concerns they will face after he leaves them and returns to heaven. You see, those men had invested three years of their life faithfully following Jesus and learning everything that God had prepared for them. But now, as Jesus prepared to depart, he urged them, saying, you must learn to get along. You must overcome adversities, and you must learn to thrive in my absence. See, John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and now in chapter 17, it completes that preparation, and he completes it by praying for them. And today we're looking at a truly unique chapter. It's the only extended prayer that we have of Jesus in the entire Bible. See, in its first five verses, Jesus prayed regarding his own relationship with God the Father. And then from verse 6 to verse 19, he prayed for the 11 disciples that were with him that night after Judas had left. See, now beginning at verse 20, Jesus prayed for you. 
Don't believe me? Look and you will see. In verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. When Jesus said, I do not pray for these only, he meant those 11 disciples in the room. He prayed for them, de for them deliberately and purposefully. We learn much by how Jesus prayed for those disciples because his heart for them is the same heart he has for us. But Jesus understood his work would not end with those 11 disciples in that upper room. His work must go on and it must go beyond. That's why he says in verse 20, also for those who will believe in me through their word. Crossbridge, that's astonishing. Whenever I read these verses, I, I get a little bit of the goosebumps going on. Because right there in verse 20, Jesus anticipated that the disciples, you and me, we, that who would come after those 11? Jesus knew that his work would be picked up, carried along, and passed on. In other words, Jesus is not just praying for those disciples, but also for those who have yet to believe. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, Jesus said he has other sheep not of this fold that he must seek and find. That's John chapter 10, verse 16. In John chapter 15, 16, and again in John chapter 17 and 18, Jesus also explained that his disciples were being appointed and sent. Appointed and sent to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Now he prays for future believers who will hear the gospel message through or on account of the disciples' testimony. Jesus will go on to express his desire that future believers know the full expression of the Father's love, just as Jesus knows the Father's love. That's John chapter 17, verse 23. So Jesus prays for unity of faith. His request for future believers is very specific. Like his request for disciples in verse 11, Jesus asks here three times that they may all be one, verse 21, that they may be one, verse 22, and that they may become perfectly one, verse 23. Look again at verse 21. His request in verse 21, that they may all be one, is in the third person plural. In other words, Jesus is praying they all, referring to both present and future disciples, to be united in one gospel-centered, gospel-loving community of believers. Look, Jesus did not ask for solidarity. He's not asking that they become familiar. He's not asking for toleration or, as some might say, to go along to get along. Nor is Jesus asking for uniformity. It's none of the above. Jesus asks that the Father unite all present and future believers as a family. Whether by bridging cultures or not, he calls us to become a family in Christ. In his prayer, Jesus called out to his Father six times in chapter 17 and three times in our verses 20 to 26. He used that familial title, Father, 
to show us the family identity we are given as believers. If believers are children of God, then they belong to the family of God. They have fellow adopted brothers and sisters. There's no distinction based on race, none on ethnicity, generation, or social standing. How does Apostle Paul describe you as a family of God's family? Let's see what he says. Believers are one new man in place of the two. That's Ephesians 2.15. Citizens of heaven. That's Philippians 3.20. Members of a new household. That's Ephesians 2.19. And members of one body. That's Colossians 3.15. Through Christ, we are reunited by faith in Jesus as one new family. Did you hear in any of those references to unity a call to uniformity? No. Unity is the goal. It's not uniformity. Paul celebrates diversity in the unity produced by the gospel. Diversity is by design. It's not an accident. Jesus invites every one of you with all of your unique personalities and your gifting, right, to be united together in one body. However we once felt before Christ, however we felt similar or different, all that becomes secondary once we are joined in union in Christ. Jesus calls all believers, past and present, to be united as one new family. His call for oneness is modeled by, his, by Jesus' own oneness with the Father. It is established in the triunity or the trinity of the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His call for our unity with one another begins with his call for our unity with God. Jesus prays to his Father saying, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 21. Again, he prays in verse 22, saying that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. In both cases, Jesus draws believers together in unity by drawing each believer closer to God. You and I are being united as the Son unites you with the Father through the gospel. So that our unity with one another is established by your unity with God. Now, it's impossible to experience this supernatural unity that Jesus prays for unless Jesus supernaturally reorients your heart and reconciles you to God. As a result of original sin in the Garden of Eden, man is alienated from God and we are alienated from one another. The fellowship for which we were created is broken. In fact, all of creation is broken. Our lives are marked by discord, conflict, and strife. Therefore, salvation offered in Jesus means restoration to wholeness, to peace, and unity. And that begins with Christ, who reconciles us with God and restores us to the Father. The natural overflow of our vertical reconciliation is this horizontal reconciliation with others. 
Unity is the product of reconciliation. This is why Jesus prays that all present and future believers become one, even as the Father and Son are one. Now, you see, Jesus prayed for future believers that their unity of faith so that the world may believe. So, Crossbridge, why? Why is unity the central focus of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17? Why did Jesus ask the Father to guard the disciples' unity in John chapter 17, verse 11? And why did he request unity of future believers three times in verses 21, 22, and 23? He gives us an answer. It's found in verses 21 and 22, saying both times, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Can you see why Jesus connects their unity with their witness to the world? This is important. Please don't miss this. Jesus is explaining that the world's response to the gospel somehow depends on our unity as fellow believers. In other words, our unity is important and central to the gospel that Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. It's so important that we may become his visual aid to the world and become a testimony to God's love. So whenever we say we are for God, we should also be living for one another. The love you have for one another, one believer for a fellow believer, forms the most compelling testimony about the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the gospel. Jesus says as much in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A believer's love for fellow believers will be distinct from anything else you'll find in the world. It stands apart as different and appealing. And why is that? Because when the world comes and looks, they're going to see that our love looks and feels like Jesus' love. It will be humble and sacrificial. Such love seeks the will of God over the will of self. And when we show such love, the world will understand why we, Crossbridge, are better together. When we love as Jesus loves, we testify to a gospel-transformed life. We display the power of God to transform self-serving people into self-sacrificing servants. When we turn the other cheek instead of striking back. When we forgive rather than get even. When we submit rather than dominate, then we live as Christ lived. That's a lifestyle in stark contrast with the way of the world. We display a gospel-centered and transformed life. It is in our reconciliation to one another that the world has proof that the gospel is true, that the gospel is powerful, and that sinful man can be reconciled to God. As I begin to wrap up, we'll see that Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 it ends much in the way that it began. He's asking the Father to pull back that curtain of transcendent beauty that the world may see Jesus. And in that way, Jesus is praying the very thesis statement of the Gospel of John 
which is found in chapter 20, verse 31, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. The disciples saw God in Jesus, and now we have. They received and believed, and so have we. They defended and proclaimed all that Jesus taught them about the Father, and so shall we, Lord willing. May we do as Jesus modeled for us in verse 26, to present God visibly and tangibly so that the identity, person, character, and presence of God may be accessible. So the disciples to come may know the love of the Father in them. Jesus revealed the Father, the disciples believed, and now Jesus prays they would take that same revelation into the world. This is Jesus' prayer for them, for future believers, and for Jesus' entire mission in coming to earth. This is the message that believers, both then and now, are to proclaim to the world. God sent Jesus, and now Jesus sends us into the world. Now, allow me to direct us in an extended period of response to this message by leading us first into a moment of silence, followed by prayer. And let's do this also in anticipation and preparation for the Lord's Supper. First, some explanation. One of the chief concerns of the early church was for communion to be a sign of unity especially when persecution and turmoil were beginning to pull the church apart. For example, eating of the same loaf, drinking from the same cup, gathered around the same table, these were symbols of a united people. This sense of belonging in oneness is still very important today. The wafer and the juice are an outward physical sign of an inward spiritual reality. Christ's broken body, his shed blood, are both for you and for me, that when we partake them in remembrance of Jesus, we honor the unity paid for by his death, a unity between humanity and God and between one another. Please take time now to reflect on the message and your fellowship with God and with one another. If you remember a brother or a sister has something against you, you can use this time to pray that God will make a way for you to be reconciled. After a moment of silence, I will prompt us to pray aloud in unison using the inspired words of King David.
Crossbridge, the Bible tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let us pray aloud together using the inspired words of King David from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Behold, you delight, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. O oh Lord, we draw near to you and become better together. Let us become the light that leads the world to you. God, teach us to be good role models and a witness of your love to people around us. Enable them to see you and your love among us so they will want to know you more and more. Grant us the patience and diligence to work together and become better together. May we bridge cultures as we seek to build this family in Christ. Let us serve together with understanding and compassion in our hearts. Let us not be rude or arrogant towards one another as we light the way to your heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.